0: This is applause from Hit and Run Theater's performance of our rock opera, Rock in front of 250 raucous fans at the Victoria Theater in San Francisco on December 1st, 1983. We had just launched the show in San Francisco after performances at Cotton Auditorium in Fort Bragg and the Julia Morgan Theater in Berkeley. It was a heady evening indeed for our cast, our band, and our crew, a highlight for a group that was headlining a big theater in San Francisco for the first time. At the time, Hit and Run Theater had been around for about four years, having been named in the lead-up to our Christmas review, Tis the Season, back in December 1979. For years, I used to write the following in our show programs. Its origins do indeed remain shrouded in mist, but we can safely say that Hit and Run Theater was actually named in the lead-up to the Christmas comedy review, Tis the Season, in December 1979.
1: But its real origins go back even further, back to a group of crazy Mendo hippies just looking for something to do on rainy winter nights in the 1970s. The Back to the Land movement was in full flower, and there were all kinds of displaced middle-class kids moving from urban areas to the Redwood Wonderland that is Mendocino. And at the end of the 1960s, the band Cat Mother had migrated west, led by their keyboard player Bob Smith, their bass player Roy Michaels, and their families, including their fairly theatrical wives, Alice Smith and Ellen Callis. While the Cat Mother band members led boogies and played gigs around Mendocino and further afield, people like Alice, Ellen, and their friends were looking for other outlets. Musician and eventual hit-and-runner Richard Feenbop gives us some perspective on what life was like in Mendocino in those early and middle 1970s.
2: There was no TV. There was no VCR. There was no CDs. There were no DVDs. There was, If you wanted entertainment, you had to go out and find it in some venue and that was it just made for a particularly I don't know vibrant time and because we were all that age and, and few of us had kids almost none of us had mortgages or real jobs than that. but it was all very you know flying by the seat of our pants we were driving cars that were continually breaking down and if someone talked to you about car insurance you go well what's that you know or health insurance what's that we didn't know we were poor but we were pretty poor actually when it came down to it living in our little cabins and shacks in the woods And then just uh, coming together and hit and run was this unique, small community in the middle of it all. It was just a great group of people. And just, as I say, it was just a particularly fertile
0: time. Ellen Callis, married to cat mother bass player, Roy Michaels, was from the improv capital of the world, Chicago, Illinois. And she was keen to see if there might be interest among people in perhaps meeting to play theater and improv games. Sure enough, there was. And Ellen was instrumental in pushing some folks to get together at Toad Hall on Kamshi Ukiah Road.
3: We started meeting at the barn, at Donna Brown's barn up on Kamshi Ukiah Road. Yeah. Every Tuesday night, there was an odd group of people Peter Wells, Antonia Lamb, a guy named Chris Burns, myself, Biff Rose, and Donna Brown, and a couple other people would come and go. And for on Tuesday nights, we would get together. And we would do improv. And those of us that had kind of a familiarity with it, you know, I grew up in Chicago. And so that's the home of Second City in Viola, Spall, and Viola Spolin. So that's kind of in the DNA there. So I was really familiar with it. And it was really just kind of goofing around. You know, it wasn't like we had any performance ideas. It was just something to do. Nobody had cable TV. It was like, you better sit home and look at your kerosene lamp. And so <laughs> the rain would be pouring down, so it was great.
1: Then came the bicentennial of 1976, and these woodsy thespians had a reason for a show, a theatrical spark, as it were. Ellen Callis, Bobby Markells, Antonia Lamb, James Maxwell, Corey Wisnia, Alan Kendall, Ray Furry, Dina Waldman-Zarlin, Peter Pascos, and others started meeting at Toad Hall to work on a show about America's 200th anniversary, a show that would be called 200 Years of Madness.
3: And then we had this idea in 1976 that, you know, it was the bicentennial. And we thought, well, we can't let this go un- unrecognized. So we started writing the show called 200 Years of Madness. It was like myself writing and Antonia and Bobby and it was a lot of sketches you know and just kind of a goofy take on the United States of America and so for that uh, more people joined us we did the show at uh, Toad Hall which was owned by Donna Brown there used to be rock and roll shows there you know more than that beforehand but so that's where we did our first show and I think the musical accompaniment was was uh, the Celestial Sirens which was uh, headed by Margie Crowningfield and Kathy O'Grady and Lee Larson and a bunch of women who kind of were like basically the Greek chorus, you know. And so I ended up being the MC. Bob ended up being, what else was a ridiculously funny Statue of Liberty. And we just kind of wrote these bits, you know, and uh, did the show. And it was a huge success.
4: Well, the 200 Years of Madness was celebrating the 200th anniversary of our liberation as a country. We had a lot of fun with it, and, you know, like many decades, there was always something going on in Washington that was really easy to make fun of. Matt Rowland ran the lights for us, and he was, Maddie, you're going to hear this about yourself. Uh, He was 19 years old, and um, he was great. He just showed up, ran the lights for us, all that kind of stuff.
0: And the celestial sirens included...
4: Let's see, it was me, Margie, I'm pretty sure it was Laura Jean, Cardinal, and I think Lee Larson was part of it. We were in a group kind of off to the side of the stage and did just various musical pieces as interludes or background or something. That was fun.
1: The 200 Years of Madness group drifted off into the vapors of the mid-1970s. But then, three years later in 1979, another group coalesced. Once again, it included Ellen Callis, Antonia Lamb, and James Maxwell, as well as newcomers Doug Chateau, Richard Albright, Tom Burnham, Lou Harris, the mysterious Ranger Larry Clark, and Pamela Weingar. This time, they called themselves the Hysterical Review Board, and they began working on another homemade comedy review.
3: Yeah, I guess it was. the so, Summer of 79, that's when I met Pamela. We've been friends for so long. You might have met through my brother, because they were both working at the deli. You know, we were all kind of cross-pollinating in the restaurant scene in Mendocino, so we all... how we all knew each other and so Pam joined and that was you know basically the same combination of people with more people you know that kind of joined in and we rehearsed once again we did it at Tote Hall with the Celestial Sirens and that was um, a film made about uh, the birth of Mendocino and it was like an old done like an old-timey movie with Lou Harris and Pam Stoneham and you know we did a lot of research about the history because it was the style was developing it was that kind of stick uh, kind of you know sarcastic kind of modern take on old unhistorical historical stuff and I think we called ourselves the hysterical review board for that we actually had a name.
0: Pamela Stoneham was Pamela Weingar back then. But as two fun loving women, she and Ellen proved a natural core for the group.
5: Well, I remember working with Doug Chateau, anybody who knew Doug had the most dry sense of humor. So we were I think we were the we were representing that the Chinese who we said had washed up on shore, so we'd actually literally throw ourselves up on the stage and roll across it, you know, and um yeah. Antonia Lamb wrote songs for it, I believe, and so did James Maxwell about being in line at Mendoza's. But we also acted out a, a mill and we, we were the, we were the human logs and we would roll across each other's backs. I mean, we just, we had a lot of fun. And it was at Toad Hall, so it was very, uh, we used Christmas lights for lighting. I mean, it was very home homegrown, I would say.
3: I mean, the thing that was so great about Mendocino is we were all so these cocky young hippies thinking we had invented this, we discovered it. But like so many things in history, You know, it had its roller coaster days, its ups and downs, it was, you know, boom and bust. And so, you know, it was the same for us, but it also, we learned about all these kind of interesting, strange types of people that were attracted to the place or, you know, just the culture that was created at the time. You know, we we were busy creating our culture in the sixties and seventies and eighties up here. Our, you know, our Mendocino counterculture. But there was the culture of the loggers and there was the culture of the Chinese folks that came in, you know, I mean, one of three boats that shipwrecked, all that stuff. And it was also political. You know, Antonia wrote her song, you know, you know, there always is a N-word. And it was like, be careful, the next one might be you. And she just kind of listed, you know, the the people because there was a lot of immigrants that came in, the Finns came in. The Portuguese came in, you know, there's so every layer that
0: would come in. It was like, oh, whoever was the newest one was the bottom of the ladder, right? Homemade pointed political satire, Happy Birthday Mendocino, was produced in June of 1979 at Toad Hall. But after that, the group once again sort of dissolved. James Maxwell, Tom Burnham and Doug Chateau left the group. But Ellen, Pamela, Kathy, Antonia and Richard wanted to do more. They invited musician Jim Noyes and me to join workouts. I was a theatrical rookie, truth be told. I was cooking at the Seagull, had just come off playing a Wehrmacht officer in a Mendocino Performing Arts Company production of Kurt Vonnegut's Happy Birthday Wanda June, and I had been writing skits for a local group, the Humoroids with Jim Noyes and Johnny Robin, when the call came from Pamela to join these workouts.
1: By September 1979, the group decided to put together a homemade Christmas show, what in England is called a Panto, a series of skits and songs about the holiday season. The troupe went right to work researching the history of the Christmas holidays.
0: I remember writing The Life of St. Nicholas, a sort of ridiculous biography of Santa Claus. And we did all sorts of goofy skits around the Christmas we all knew. In the meantime, we were getting to know each other. I remember when,
3: after Happy Birthday Mendocino, when Pamela suggested that we meet, you know, you and Jim and and all of us meet together. It was just sort of like, it was like she was setting up a blind date. You know, I think you guys would got to get along. These guys are really funny and, you know, it'd be fun. And sure enough, you know, it was. And we just kind of bonded and then you find that you'd rather spend time with each other than just about anybody else and then given that you're living in a community where you literally have to make your own entertainment <laughs> you know, there is no internet there was no cable you know for that matter you know in videos that was still light years away so you know we literally you know i mean
0: just like it, back in the barn we did it for our own entertainment it was then that we came up with a name for the group as I recall, it was actually Jim Noise who came into practice one evening saying, hey, let's call ourselves Hit and Run Theater. And he imitated a car crash. And then somebody getting out of the car and running away. Hitting and running.
3: You know, it was that kind of thing. It was that sense of guerrilla theater. We were kind of hitting and running, you know. It was just spontaneous, which was kind of the nature of
1: Kathy O'Grady was chosen to direct the holiday extravaganza, Hit and Run's Mendocino Panto. They called it Tis the Season Show, and as the group was full of young moms, Kathy insisted on involving the kids.
4: I did direct it, yes. uh-huh. and I was pretty nervous about it, but I can remember very clearly walking in, and I had a pink long scarf wrapped around my neck. And I kept playing with my scarf as if I were some hotshot woman director of a dance theater or something to help me get over my nervousness of like, oh my God, what have I done? We had a good time and we came up with a lot of good material. We also included um, some of our children who were in a couple different
5: scenes where they were elves I think the thing I loved about that show that I was remembering the other day was we all had little kids at the time, or a lot of us did, and so they were brought into the show. I remember Jason came on stage, and at that time he was four, and I mean, there were the pajamas, that so they did uh, We Three Kings, do you remember? Yes. And they just loved the, it exploded part, they would all fall on the ground, or Johnny Crowning Shield coming out as a little elf who had the long list of uh, good or bad, that was sort of an ongoing bit in the whole thing. Right. Um, yeah, it was, I guess for me it's hard to paint the picture of looking back about just how amazing it was to transform Crown Hall into this warm, inviting place that we must have had a couple hundred people there
0: each night. Another key addition to our group was our new light person, Harry Rothman, who would end up doing way more than lights over the next years.
6: It was during Tis the Season. I ended up running lights. I can't remember exactly how it came about. I think it was because I had done the lights for the Gloriana show, so I was familiar with them and with the light board. And it, I had met you. I saw you in um, Happy Birthday, Wanda June, right? And then I met you when I was working at Napa Auto Parts, and you came in with uh, trying to get fix your engine on your truck or something, right?
1: The show included Margie Crowning Shield, Laura Jean Cardinal, Lee Larson. Lynn Keyswetter, and others in the Celestial Sirens offstage, as well as a variety of other community stalwarts like Ann Ryman, Kay Rudin, and Tony McSack. John Chamberlain made one of his epic posters a warm-hearted salute to the holidays. And when it ended, everyone agreed they'd had a lovely experience. It also seemed like they might want to continue.
0: In January 1980, a few of us, I honestly think it was Ellen and Pamela, came up with the idea of going to improv workshops at the boarding house in San Francisco. They were led by members of the committee, the long-standing San Francisco Improv Group, and our first workshop coaches were the tremendously supportive and very funny Jim Cranna and Nancy Fish. We went to those workshops, learned a bit, were embarrassed even more and came back determined to try some of this new improv comedy stuff at home.
5: And I think we were actually doing some improv before we went there a little bit. We had just sort of dipped our toe in the water of it and didn't really know anything about what we were doing, except we knew we wanted to do it. Yeah. And then, yeah, we went, all went down to San Francisco together. It was the big outing I'll, I'll never forget and um, got totally excited about it. I remember just loving going down there and it was just so cool to be down with people who were doing it. We were, I, I learned a lot from them. Um, that's where I think that's the first time I've been doing this, what, 42 years now? That's where I fell in love with it the first time. The art of improv was doing it in that group and going, this is something I could really enjoy. I mean, it's just everything was new. It was always new and it still is. That's, that's the cool part.
3: Eventually, when we, you know, started actually going to, um, you know, working out with Jim Crana and all the other improvisers in the city and then learning more, you realize, oh, yeah, there is a format, you know, that you can use to guide you through to create a narrative.
0: Right. And so that was a lot better. We ended up booking shows at the Casper Inn run by Peter Litt in April and June 1980 and started working on some new skits, and we were determined to try some of that improv. As I recall at the time, Hit and Run Theater included Pamela, Ellen, Kathy, Richard Albright, Laura Jean Cardinal, Jim Noyes, Kay Rudin, and me. We were supported musically sometime by Cat Mother's Bob Smith and John Chamberlain, and often by Margie Crowningshield. One of those first shows was named by Richard Albright, Cac Cac Ergo Sum, and I believe shows took place in April and June of 1980. Unlike a lot of comedy groups we met at that time, we had a very strong female presence.
3: The women are strong in Mendocino, and so naturally things like the ovaries, the dead ovaries, which was a punk group, came out, and uh and, Femme Show and our commentary on, on uh, classic gender mores and, you know, stuff like that. So, I mean, if you're a political person to begin with, whether you realize it or not, it just kind of comes through.
1: Pamela and the women wrote a song based on Pink Floyd's Brick in the Wall. Under the tentative title, We Don't Need No Stupid Come Ons. And they ended up as a pseudo rock group called The Dead Ovaries. I
5: don't know when The Dead Ovaries came up if it was that soon, but we uh, we started writing some songs and, and Casper was, I mean, the people... All the people who came were so incredibly generous in letting us try everything, you know, and they just loved that we were doing it. I liked, we, we don't need no stupid come ons, you know. Yeah. Um, and I remember <laughs> we wrote that sitting in Antonia Lamb's kitchen and we started writing it. We did it mostly to amuse ourselves. It was, a, it was a pretty much a man-hating song, which, you know, got a little uncomfortable, but we had so much fun doing it. I remember just getting kind of like sweaty armpits, <laughs> having so much fun writing it, you know. And never knowing whether you're gonna ever take it anywhere else. Yeah. And I remember the night we first performed it. And of course, I'm gonna remember because I was doing the lead on it. I went, oh my gosh, am I really gonna sing this in front of people? And I saw um, he was a, a saxophone player, and he walked by. Coco was that his name. Mm-hmm. He had a leather jacket on. And I and I'd been studying method acting a little bit, so I said, I said, hey, can I borrow your leather jacket? And he said. Uh, okay, and he handed me his leather jacket, I put it on, and all of a sudden I went, now I can do this song. You know, it was something about having that leather jacket, and I I felt this tough kit girl thing come on, and, uh, and we did it, and half the people in the audience's mouths were just open going, what the hell?
0: There were many truly fun skits in those Casper Inn bar shows. I wrote Organomatic about a machine that makes junk food seem organic. Another called the Holy Bowl, about saints playing against demons at the Vatican and a very silly political skit called The Chicken Revolt of 1984. Ellen and I shared authorship of the ludicrous comedy Exorcist about an old comic that purges vaudeville possessions. And Ellen and Kathy teamed up on two pieces about the inner voices tearing away at their confidence as women. Kathy's was called The German General, and Ellen's was called "Schlubbo."
3: Love I wrote, and Kathy's version of that was the German general, and they were both really based on kind of, um, you know, the internal dialogue you have with yourself. You know, I mean, Shlomo was the name that I had for the person inside of me that was trying to sabotage me all the time. And there was definitely had a character, whereas Kathy's which was the same thing, her character was the German general. I and mean, he was pretty much a Nazi. <laughs> you will do this. You will, what's the matter with you?
1: And then the group finally figured out a way to get some of Mendocino's omnipresent abalone shells into a skit. In one, they called "Attack of the Killer Abalone."
4: This was the attack of the abalone. Yeah. And basically, all we were doing was stumbling around the stage with our hands like glommed onto our thighs or our chest, imagining that where we were grabbing, we were the, the abalones were attacking us, and we were trying to. Trying to get the abalone off, it was like a really bad sci-fi movie.
1: Yet not all skits were, you had to be there, or thank God we were all drunk. There was Harry Rothman doing his takeoff on West Side Stories Maria, which he called lasagna, and to which he gave heart and soul.
6: I sang lasagna words with the <laughs> Maria words. Eat it fast and there's music playing. Eat it slow and it's almost like praying. I mean, it really, I just stuffed my face with lasagna. You know, it just went on. I had a little table with a checkered tablecloth on it,
7: the whole thing.
0: We mixed in some very primitive improvised skits, and there was one little ditty the girls of Hit and Run wrote, which became a big hit in future shows. A song we called The Sperm Song. The in Improviganza, which we played at the Helen Shoney in Mendocino and then took to Ukiah a few months later. Keyboard player and Ellen Callis's cousin, Louis Dimitri, who would join us later for the Arnold Vicious and Rockalypse shows, was our accompanist. We were writing a fair amount, and as many of us were in the tourist industry, working as waitresses, cooks and the like, we produced Assholes on Vacation a comical look at how tourism was affecting our little community.
4: It was introduced by a scene of a family in a restaurant, and we were brutally rude. Of course, having, you know, mixed feelings about having tourists in town aided us because some of the tourists that came to town were brutally rude. And so, you know, there's like food getting thrown and people getting slapped and stuff, and we loved every minute of it. And so did the audience, because that was our chance to vent about some of the things that were changing in Mendo.
1: came May of 1981's No Nuke Show. The group worked with local DJ Rich Alcott and opened for famed 1960s comic and social commentator Paul Krasner at Crown Hall. Hit and Run had a bunch of good musicians behind them, effectively many members of the future Hit and Run orc, and featured two new make-believe bands, the left-wing activists The Irish Persons and the right-wing SoCal band The Birch Boys.
6: We opened with um, with Miss Island's Silo, and I had a full beard. <laughs> full, big, bushy beard, right? I mean, I remember Harrisburg. Harrisburg, Harris, the town with no hair. Yes.
0: Yeah, that was Jim Noyce's noise. song. Yeah. Yeah. Take your London, take your Paris, because we won't be embarrassed. And then he had that great line, we've got a." We got a nightlife with a half life -life of twenty thousand years. (laughs) (laughs) That was a great one. Anyway, take it away from there.
6: Uh, Anyway, I can't can't remember all the things in between. I just remember that I shaved in the kitchen. I cut, I cut this whole massive beard off to come out as a clean-cut white guy for the white Anglo-Saxon Protestant birch boys. That's that's what I remember. And I just I remember both. Yeah, both of those shows. I mean and we had the orc that was the first time we had the orc right right yeah man that was that was so awesome i'll never forget the birch Boys thing and i wish we could do it
8: again
0: us make a point about the rise of Reagan's Christian right wing, led by Jerry Falwell's moral majority. Harry and I wrote a parody of the Beach Boys' I Wish They All Could Be California Girls, called I Wish They All Could Be White Anglo-Saxon Protestants.
9: Ladies and gentlemen, from Orange County, the Birch Boys and the Watchmen.
0: Nuke Show was indeed a power-packed show filled with political comedy, which was becoming a hallmark of hit-and-run theater. I think we fit right in with Paul Krasner and his tradition of caustic social commentary. We ended that summer on a bang, writing a show we called Winestock for the Ed Mead's Winery for Labor Day weekend 1981. We were supposed to play in front of an outdoor crowd at the winery outside Philo, but we hadn't counted on the heat. Temps were almost 100 degrees, and we were broiling on a flatbed truck in the middle of a vineyard at Ed Mead's Winery.
6: One of my favorite shows. We'll drink whale wine, we'll drink rain wine, we'll drink anything they'll give us because we've got to get ourselves fucking oblivious. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) That was was assholes on vacation for the first time too.
0: That's right. And we were out there. It was at the Ed Meads Winery in the Anderson Valley (laughs) and it was probably 95 degrees. It was. It was brutal. And we were on the back of a, uh, like a truck or something Yeah, we were on a flatbed. flatbed, Right. And um, it was just, we were pouring out the sweat. And uh, it was one of those ones where I think the crowd was in the, slightly in the distance hiding under trees. Yeah, that's exactly true. Yeah.
1: But after Weinstock, Hit and Run went through one of those inevitable transitions groups passed through. Pamela headed for L.A. for acting classes. Laura Jean backed away from the group for a few years, and their ranks were thinned. Hit and Run was down to Ellen, Kathy, Harry, and Doug.
0: Harry went in for
1: shoulder surgery, and we started meeting once a week in
0: his room in the rainy winter of 1981. We lowered our expectations and wrote a radio show starring our moms as a secret group of World War II special forces beholden only to FDR himself, the Fighting Moms Overseas Military Squad, or the Fighting M.O.M.S. We produced a radio show in the winter of 1981 called Moms Over Tokyo and performed it at Crown Hall. Later, we produced another Fighting Moms piece, which Richard Feenbop helped us produce, this one was called The Hoover from Hanover and was quite involved. Move over, Rosie the Riveter. Unfortunately, that recording is lost to posterity. Still, we did manage a Fighting Moms fight song, which I can recreate for you. We are the moms, we are stout-hearted moms, and we fight for the right to be free. Bum 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 We are the moms, we are hard-hearted moms, and we fight Tojo and Mussolini. And if Hitler had the croup, we would spoil his
1: chicken soup. Cause we're moms who are moms who drop bombs, bum, bum, bum. But Hit and Run continued writing, and that very same winter of 1981 to 1982 came up with a show idea that truly resurrected the group. A show called O Velveeta. No, it didn't have anything to do with O Calcutta. It was its own little gem, a series of skits, commercial parodies, and songs. The group also invited old friends Antonia Lamb and Richard Albright to rejoin and brought in some excellent new talent, Linda Pack and Otak from Gloriana Opera Company, and a good friend, Steve Weingarten, who would spend most of the next four decades with Hit and Run.
10: Yeah, so I rolled up my sleeve and and jumped in, and that was, um, what was it? That was O Velveeta was my first show and it seemed as though my what my role became more or less or where my piece of importance was a i had a truck meaning i could assemble and disassemble sets and have more responsibility than other people to do that which was fine because you know it it was an exciting group of youthful and energetic people and i'd just gotten out of my art school and so i was visually inclined and uh Most people were theatrically inclined, meaning in general terms they knew where the spotlights were. And I never knew where the spotlight was, but I learned how to build sets and props. I had understood color to a
0: point. Contrary to Whiny's self-deprecating words, he also played the part of Johnny Bernays, one half of the Bernays brothers. I was his brother Toulouse. We were two incredible culinary giants, oddly joined at the hip. Our first skit was called Mikro Magnifique and established our routine. I would write a ridiculous skit calling for some silly contraption key to our culinary brilliance, and Whiny would build the prop, usually out of plywood. We went on to star in a series of nine Bernays Brothers bits over the years, from Mikro Magnifique to Cordon Bleu Tactical Weapons Station to a final celebration of Bastille Day in 1989, a skit where Whiny, a.k.a. Johnny, lost his head to a guillotine. Here, a few moments of silliness from our debut in O Velveeta.
10: Ladies and gentlemen, Madame de Monsieur,
8: it's time for America's favorite Frenchman, the guys who are to be fried with Jacques is to the deep sea. <laughs> <laughs> and now, and toulouse <laughs>
11: This is wild, the tea birds have flashed one into the Woo! wish you a baby in a oh, Hey, 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 hey,
9: hey, 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 oh! Oh,
1: a full-scale parody called Nancy True Girl Detective, a bunch of silly international sitcoms featuring That's My Bolshevik, The Islamic Honeymooners, From Beirut, Not the Bronx, and Italy's entry I Love Lucia, where Ellen got to imitate Lucille Ball.
3: Valditas were great, but the cheese years, I mean, how much mileage can you get out of cheese jokes? We managed to get a lot. (laughs) <laughs> you know, I think Herb Kane might even mention this at one point, I don't know, you know, because he was a Velveeta guy, but Velveeta, yeah, it was very productive, and we were just, uh, you know, off and running, you know, and we, we were kind of finding, for lack of a better term, style, you know, of creation, I mean, we would do, we would meet regularly, we would improv, we would, somebody would come in with an idea, You know, maybe work that. Somebody might come in with a whole script. Everybody worked individually differently. You know, some of it was just born out of characters, characterizations out of an improv, you know.
1: Another skit called Ronald Ronnie Hood was a takeoff on Robin Hood, with Reagan as a sheriff of Nottingham figure, allowing O-Talk to go full throttle as a singing Ronald Reagan.
11: (laughs) And These are in my class just right-wing money men, <laughs> and these are my like just right-wing money men. Now you may think I run this gang, and I may think so too. But as everybody knows, the rich run the show, and I do like puppets too. But as everybody knows, the rich run the show, and you do, what they do. like puppets too. I cannot stand no welfare cheat or a pinko bureaucrat. Yes, my friends, they are all money men and well-bent plutocrats. His friends they are all mundane men and wealth and plutocrats. The poor they smell of rice and beans, they belch and farm all day. The bleeding hearts are commie most of whom are gay.
8: The bleeding hearts are commie tarts, most of whom are
11: gay. Yes, I dream of a time so long ago, in old Cal day. The rich were fat, the poor were cute and everybody knew their place. (laughs) The rich were fast, the poor were cute, and everybody knew their place.
0: After all, Velveeta, we momentarily dispersed and spread to the winds, but started writing again soon. And good old, reliable Greg Hillman stepped in as business manager. Thank you, Greg, giving us an organized center. By early summer, we reformed again to do another in our Velveeta series, this time National Velveeta. There were a lot of political skits in this show once again, and its nickname was A Look at Violence and Deception. But it was also rooted in silliness, as in the comedy Poltergeist, a loose parody satire of Poltergeist.
3: Yeah, it was actually one of my favorite bits of all time. Just ridiculously silly, but it's, you know, it's a a story of a a little girl. Everybody's very serious. You can't laugh. She gets in trouble with their parents because she didn't go to Frownies that day, you know, and and her parents played, Kathy and, and Harry played her very grouchy parents and uh, Linda was her name. But the original movie Poltergeist had come out. And so they kind of informed each other. you know oh, She gets in trouble also because she went to Glee Club instead of Frownies. You know, and it's like, what? So she's watching TV and she wants to watch cartoons, but her parents won't let her. Or not, but something draws her into the television set. And the long and the short of it is, it turns out their house is built on the side of an old Borschtfeld, you know, uh, comedy club. So I mean, every joke we could get, you know. I mean, every physical comedy. I mean, we had furniture. The furniture was like hanging from the rafters of Crown Hall, you know, just silly, silly stuff. I loved it.
6: The low tech was the only way we could go. We didn't have any money. We didn't have anything. No. So what we did for the flying furniture, we used cubes with a, a an eye hook screwed into it, with a rope attached to it. The ropes were there <laughs> the whole time. <laughs>
0: And then we and, pulled them through eye offstage, hooks in the three ceiling.
6: Pulling chairs, and we're just flying up in the air, just floating around. It was incredibly stupid. And the uh, the TV screen that the small child and poltergeist gets pulled into, we just had a, a big blue light inside, right behind a, a little. Hole that was blocked off from the audience. They couldn't see the light, and Ellen could disappear into the into the TV.
1: <laughs> to go further on low tech, Matt Rowland and Steve Weingarten put together an extraordinary plastic set and all kinds of instant props. Matt and Steve were amazingly productive.
10: Ed Wood. Ed, Ed Wood was doing yes. Stuff. And uh, man, I I didn't mean to, but I sort of took the Ed Wood approach, which is that. Well, you can fly things around. All you got to do is put a string on it and an eye hook in the ceiling, you know? And these things were, so these things would happen. And it was plain as day what was going on, but we weren't hiding it. We were just doing, you know, it's like, how can we do this and not spend money on it?
1: And as there were lots of explosions in this show, which was commenting on violence, there were a lot of exploding flashpots. Harry fills us in.
6: Maddie joined the, the, the group. Um, he decided to encase Crown Hall in white plastic. <laughs> and then we decided to use flash pots on white plastic flammable material. <laughs> it's amazing we didn't burn down Crown Hall. It's really amazing.
0: <laughs> and just to give folks who, who don't know, who are listening to this first time, a flash pot. Is you to tell us how you make a flash, pod. this is low tech theater that Harry was excellent at. It
6: was what we did was we took little screw and fuses and cut the plastic out of the top and poured flash powder in, screwed it into a, a, a light socket and then wired the light socket up to, you know, when you flip the switch, it shot the power to it and blew up the flash powder. It was very simple. <laughs>
0: yeah, it's a very simple theatrical prop. And we used it for every explosion we had. And we had a lot. <laughs> the Bernays brothers were back with their Cordon Blue tactical weapons station, which allowed us to comment on the Falklands War. And as Ronald Reagan was casually talking about nuclear war at the time, I wrote a parody of Smokey Robinson's I Second That Emotion called I Second That Mutation, which we did as a band of mutants. Harry played Smokey Roach, a mutant cockroach. Are
8: I <laughs> Direct from a half-life performance at the bombed-out Spamadium, please welcome Smokey Roach and the Mutation!
12: I call the so if you feel like giving me a drop to radiation, I'll second that mutation. Oh, if you think you're smiling on your rearrange creation, I'll second that mutation.
0: We also did a sort of mysterious soap opera involving the Livermore Nuclear Weapons Lab and starring Kathy as Detective Mrs. Marples. And we introduced a new player, a girl with a big loud voice and a lot of spunk, Tracy Burns.
13: It'll be too loud. But what if I told you you didn't have to kill yourself to lose weight? What if I told you there was an easier way to lose weight? Anyway, it went on and on. You know, they were all really fun sketches. They were all really fun parts. So anytime somebody brought a sketch, especially if you brought a sketch, and we were just reading to see who was going to do what, I went full out on everything because I wanted the part. And so I quickly learned that was not too cool. Like, I was competing, you know, to be, oh, Beverly Scarsdale, that's great. I don't know where that voice came out from. It just came out. It just, it just showed up.
1: Tracy had met Ellen, Harry, Richard, and Linda Pack in a Linda-directed production of Moliere's The Doctor in Spite of Himself, which MTC had produced at Van Damme State Park.
13: It was after you all had done Oh, which I never saw, but um, Ellen Callis and Harry Rothman were in that and um, became, so we've all played together and I knew about Hit and Run, And Ellen and I became really close. I would drive her home from rehearsals, and we'd talk for hours. And I was very interested in maybe joining the group because it was comedy and sketch. And Ellen was very interested in having me get in the group.
1: Suddenly, Burns was a full-tilt member of the group, working on a comedy review with the theme of violence in contemporary America.
13: So I got tasked with writing Violence in the Kitchen with Dinah, which I didn't do for a long time and actually ended up writing it, mostly sitting on one of those big tables in the kitchen at um, Crown Hall, while other stuff was going on and I was supposed to like have this done and I'm sitting and furiously writing this sketch because it's like in five minutes, I have to turn it into you, you know, to the group. And that was the first sketch that I wrote for Hit and Run. It was violent thinking for Dinah. But, but uh, how can we forget
9: the old five o'clock show, right? Every woman's disaster call. We call it here at Cheminsky's uh-huh. the Whiskah <laughs> <laughs>
13: was that it was, I think the first one was a cooking show and it was how to get your aggression out and be productive at the same time. And it was usually around her husband that she was pissed off at. So I had a head of lettuce that I pummeled, like punched out and it created a salad and I smashed eggs together. And it was all this way of cooking while getting your frustrations and aggression out. So it was a big, it was also the first in, in a long line of very messy sketches. <laughs> I liked making a mess.
1: But National Velveeta also included some reflective, heartfelt skits, like The River, where Kathy and Ellen reflected on their last decade in Mendocino and what had been gained and lost.
14: I'm sure we're different, then. I'm sure we're different now. Oh, that was ten years ago. Hey, look, there's that skirt that we worked so hard on, the tie-dyed one. Yeah, and that embroidered blouse with the wildflowers all over it. Right, and the skirt would flow around when we danced. Remember that?
7: I don't know when we ever had
14: time for embroidery. Oh, that was a great day, man. And that was the day that Laughing Horse was so stoked, he fell right out of his beaded headband. You that? <laughs> <laughs> uh, that was
12: ten
15: years
14: ago. Hey, you know what I'd really like to do today? I'd really like to go to the river today. What do you think? River? We've been to the river for years. We're not fond of that stuff. Oh man, I know. And me to speak to you about it. I mean, here it is, almost the end of July. And we haven't been to the river once. Oh, there's work to be done. Work to be done. Come on, man. You remember the river when you go and you swim under the water like a fish, and you come up under some little kid and pull their pants down. <laughs> and the heaviest thing that happens all day long is you yell at the kids for throwing sand at each other. Well, times are heavier now. wiped out fields. Oh wow, man, you are blowing our minds! What happened to your experience, Peter? You didn't take all those drugs for nothing, you know. <laughs> <laughs> the perspective we gave? You know how we're just like this little micro cradled inside this form of awareness, inside of a bigger being of intergalactic oneness and consciousness. You know, my robe has to pay our rent, and our beautiful life is just about out of control. Oh, wow, man. You know, if you try to control your life anymore, you're going to choke the very breath out of it. Do you know what would happen if I stopped and relaxed? It would, it would all fall apart. I'd never get it. Oh, let it fall apart. Oh, the flow. you'd be captain of your own ship.
1: And if we wanted to go to the river, we'd put a sign on
14: the door and say, "Go into the river. A rat race came here. Oh, man, you worry too much. You know what you're reminding me of? You're reminding me an awful lot of our parents. Our parents? (coughs) That is a low low. (laughs) blow. Like all taut and leathery, start to feel like an Indian. And at the end of the day, the sky gets pink. You can take the little sticks from the fire and toss them into the river. And it makes little fireworks. It's very, very beautiful. My neck has been burning really a lot. Oh, no. What do you say? Come on. What's it afternoon? Okay. Alright, just let me finish this stuff off. <coughs> Drop it off at the post office. Great. Get a six-pack of beer. Great. Far <coughs> up. <out. coughs> oh, what a beautiful thing. Oh boy. Roof. Uh-huh.
0: In the summer of 1982, as we were doing National Velveeta, we were also talking about taking on the idea of creating a homemade rock opera. A combination of two stories, one coming from Richard Feenbop and myself, the Arnold Vicious story originating in the London punk scene, and one about three girls from Flushing, New York, who dreamed of being rock stars. I went right to work pasting together inspirational pictures and typing up scene ideas. Richard and I had both spent a fair amount of time in England in the previous while and were keen to do a punk story. We settled on the name Arnold Vicious with a nod to Sid Vicious from the Sex Pistols. And I was keen to have Richard play the part.
2: I'm not an actor. I was never an actor. I don't ever think I was ever a good actor. I'm I'm just ridiculously wooden and self-conscious on stage, but I'm a good performer. Give me a guitar and let me sing and I will carry my own weight with stuff. So it was hard, it was tricky. The whole idea of, of improvising just scared the shit out of me. And it was like, I wanna know where we're going and what we're doing, and this is over to uh, you know, big wide open stuff. So at the same time though, that was really good to do that because it definitely loosened me up.
1: And frankly, the girls, Ellen, Kathy, Tracy, and Laura Jean, who was willing to come back and play a key part, were absolutely delighted to portray an all-girl band.
3: It was a Faustian tale. I thought it was very profound. Um, that's, just, I mean, it was it, it was like the parallel of these two different groups. You know, these young women from Flushing, New York, who just started off as a way to meet the Beatles. You know, they figured this too they were going to meet them as equals, so they'd start a band. You know, and then across the ocean on the other end was Arnold Vicious and his rise and you played by brilliantly by yourself manager Rich Sleesford who you know did the shortcut way and so it was interesting to see like the parallel of these two groups you know and, and as an interesting examination of like the, the journey of an artist and the choices you make.
0: So we took the original sheets of the outline I wrote and began improvising the scenes from scratch, all in Tracy and Lindsay's garage.
13: That was so fun. And um, yeah, we used my garage on Wheeler Street. I had a roommate, um, Lindsay, and we had a couple of kittens and they kept getting locked in the garage and they kept pooping. And you guys would get so mad at me because there'd be you know, cat poop and it would smell and I'd have, oh, anyway, gosh, that was amazing. I was part of the ovaries um, with Ellen and um, Kathy and Laura Jean. And so we got to create our own characters. My character was Cherry Manhattan. She was a drummer. I loved Cherry Manhattan, loved her. And we had so much fun and just playing and creating this show. You know, I dyed my hair magenta for it. And, um, and it ended up, I mean, again, small town, but it ended up being a huge hit. So much so that everybody talked us into going into the, to take it to the city, take it to San Francisco which we did, which became Rockalypse, which was, yeah, which was quite something, quite an adventure. But just the purity of the Arnold Vicious punk opera, the purity of, create. one of the things I loved so much about Hit and Run was there was no end product, there was no end result, this was not for anything. This was just people getting together to have fun and we got to entertain our friends and neighbors
4: but we were radical women. We were, um, you know, because it was drums, bass, and guitar that we were playing. And one of my favorite parts of that was I played guitar, and John Chamberlain in the orchestra. I, because we were synced in, we also happened to be married. And we would just, I would just tune in. And so I would do, I would look like I was really playing exactly what John was
0: playing. Now, mind you, Kathy had a fiberglass guitar. Or was I did. It, was it fiberglass or no. was it
4: foam plastic? it was a foam plastic yeah. guitar. Yeah. And, it was, yeah. and it, was, it was, it was like a big blue guitar with a really long neck, it was huge. You know, but I could, you know, swing my arm all around when when John was playing like the big strums. And, you know, for solo lines, I was like, my fingers are moving up and down. The frets. I loved
6: that part. I don't know. I mean, I was just learning how to be a director. I was kind of interning with Linda Pack at Gloriana, uh, like being her assistant director and such. And I didn't direct a show for them until three years later when I did Fiddler on the Roof. But I also did, I did a show almost at the same time as we did Arnold Vicious. I was, I'm sure that helped a lot in terms of organizing all that, but um, I don't know. I think it turned out pretty good. Don't you?
0: It seemed like the whole community got involved. As Arnold Vicious took over Crown Hall, we had makeup artists Kate Wilson and Gianna Dennis and tons of other input. Arnold Vicious was a community event at Crown Hall in December of 1982. There was something about the
2: Arnold Vicious show that had a little, for whatever reason, it just had a little bit of magic to it. It was good versus evil. There was love, there was community, there was forgiveness, there was redemption. I mean, it, all in the in the shape of this kind of quirky musical comedy but I think that first show we did it when we were, we played it at Crown Hall at the end of the night there'd be people in the audience and they were genuinely touched by it and it wasn't just uh you know ha, ha ha that was just another bunch of good skits but there was some real yeah there's a you know you, you played a good evil man Doug and you <laughs> and you were kind of redeemed at the end, you know? And I think that was the kernel of what had us go, well, you know, maybe there's something here that, that more could be done with.
0: And so we decided to see if we could take the show further. We decided to rewrite the show. Matt Rowland agreed to produce it, and we went about finding a director from San Francisco. We chose SF comic musician and longtime producer of Comedy Day, Jose Simone from the San Francisco Comedy Underground we got started on the rewriting process almost right away. We
2: treated it quite professionally that you and Kathy and Ellen and and I would get together every week in your house and we would rigorously go through it, rewrite it, write it again and and keep fleshing out the story. We just kept working probably for a good three or four months. And then I remember one day we had had the big meeting. It was like the board meeting. We we all sat at, it might've been at my house actually, We sat at a long table, the four of us, and we had had scripts in front of us. We basically performed the show, I think, as it were. We just did a reading, anyway, for everyone else. And they kind of like,
7: "Mm -hmm, you know,
2: maybe, yeah, oh, yeah, okay, possibly, you know, and uh, took it from there. And, um, you know, that became Rockalypse, which there was still something to that show, I think, that worked very well. It was a good show and um we were but we were what was that phrase in, on the program and a youthful faith and folly or something
1: in addition the musicians now called the orc went to work expanding and rewriting some of the music.
2: keyboards. Louis bass, Louis drums and keyboards, LJ singing, I played guitar, and JC played guitar and mandolin and sang and generally an all-arounder. And you would come up with the improv parts and some ideas of what the skits were. And then we had to write a song that would work with it. And um, it, was a, it was a great pressure cooker to be in because we'll be sitting in Margie's house and I think we'd be, we'd be on the phone with you. Okay. Well, we doing this. We do that. And you'd be rehearsing somewhere else. Like, oh, what are you doing now? And then, he, and then it was like, well, we, we came, so we came up with these different songs, and, and um, only about nine or ten of them. And then we had to tie them all together and make the overture. Which was, it was a great project. It was a great meeting of all these different, you know, musicians too. So we just I mean, there was no writer. Everyone was in the room and everyone threw ideas in. And what came out was uh, the music for that show.
0: For the Rockalypse Bay Area run, we lost Winey and Albright from the original cast, but found able replacements in Lawrence Bullock and Charles Tyler. In addition, Pamela Stonham came back to play the part of The Groupie. Her husband, Bill Stonham, who had later worked for ILM, that is, Industrial Light and Magic, made a magnificent prop of Reg's Black Box, turning it into an ongoing morphing of a super music machine. Matt Rowland worked hard to put together a winning production, but we were underfunded, had marginal PR skills, and a very limited budget.
3: It was an interesting run. I mean, you know, it was really 26 people, you know, leaving their lives for uh, almost two months to go down to perform in Berkeley and then in San Francisco, um, and, you know, and and without really much professional experience in terms of how to promote something at that time. So the people that saw the show really enjoyed it. but. It was really difficult. We really didn't know how to get audiences in there. I, I remember, you know, some, some very strange matinees where, you know, we would get special audiences. But there was one, I don't mean this to say this disparagingly, but we had a special audience that was made up of about 25
0: Canatomics who were all sitting in the front row. <laughs> and we were so thrilled to have an audience. So we failed in a showbiz big hit kind of way. In that we just couldn't put butts on seats. But the Orc was indeed a very good group musically. They would continue working together for the next few years.
4: It was Margie Crowningshield, John Chamberlain,
0: Louis Dimitri, Louis
4: Dimitri, Louis and Louis Kalitz. And for some of you, those names are going to revive memories. But at the time, those were pretty much most of the top musicians, rock, punk general good music people in the, the music, the composition of the music and the lyrics of the music and how it all fit together and how unique each musical piece was it was just a joy joy yeah. right. all of us after we had done our tour they would stay together as as an orchestra we called them the orc meaning orchestra, not the bad orcs that gobble people. And uh, they maintained that relationship for quite a while and would do gigs at Casper and lots of other places.
1: Rockalypse fell apart at the Victoria Theatre just before Christmas 1983. The group went bust, and poor Matt Rowland had to face the financial music.
0: I remember when Dan Coffey of Duck's Breath Mystery Theatre came to the show with his family one night and was probably one of ten people in the audience. Dan said to me afterwards, Who's paying for this? Unfortunately, it was an overworked Matt Rowland. Matt had done his best to keep things together, but the money ran out and the cast was by turns sick and exhausted. It was a fairly downtrodden show strike that Christmas week of 1984.
1: But hope springs eternal, and comedy dies hard. Tracy and Doug came up with a new idea for a comedy series for the upcoming year, LaughFest 84. They had been meeting comedians in the Bay Area and were anxious to bring them up to Mendocino. The premise was that Hit and Run would write reviews and then open for established comedians, who would be the headliners.
0: Soon we had a list of comedians quite happy to come up for the holiday-like weekend on the Redwood Coast. Ray Hanna, DAlan Moss, Will Durst, Doug Ferrari, and comedy groups, Marx de Morrissey and the Comedy Underground, an improv group. And we started writing once again. There were plenty of skit ideas out there to be tried, lots of Reagan-era politicians to make fun of, and plenty of silliness abounding. Pamela Stoneham was back from studying acting in L.A. We contacted her about playing a mermaid in our new skit idea, Splash Dance, where she would play a dancing sea starlet. Yes. Yeah. And so we managed to combine them into a uh, skit called Splash Dance, which you were the star of.
5: That was when I came back from L.A. I mm-hmm. remember Tracy telling me about the idea.
0: One of the my favorite parts of that particular skit was um, we had talked you into wearing this sort of mermaid costume. And you were a, a, a mermaid who had wannabe ideas about um, getting someplace in showbiz. So we oh, we managed to string together a medley of <laughs> navy and uh, ship pirate songs. <laughs> oh,
5: Popeye songs!
0: Popeye. We had Popeye the Sailor <laughs> Man. We had the Sailor's Hornpipe. Py- yeah. <laughs> and so we put together this thing, probably lasting maybe a minute and a half of these of these uh, nautical ditties, and you had to dance to them. I'll never forget your face when you first heard the thing and you looked at. There, I think I had managed to put together the medley, and you looked at me like, you fucking asshole. <laughs> <laughs> but you. Did- I studied acting in LA. <laughs> I'm not doing this. <laughs> the great thing was, though, is you kicked ass. It was so funny. It was, you know. I, re- I remember,
5: ahead. well, I remember finding um, a piece of tube t shirt material, this long piece of tube, and I pulled that up over my hips. And then I had this ridiculously long blonde wig and I put on some swim fins and we danced with those on so they'd flap on the stage. Do you remember? <laughs> 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 Luis, Luis Ver-
0: Yes, that was me on the offstage mic, classic, homemade, hit-and-run low-tech. But with LaughFest 84, we were back, writing skits and sharing comedy ideas.
3: Well, I remember, you know, I I really have this memory. Like, everybody coming over to my house on Road 18, and we were sitting outside around this card table, You know, I had my little Smith Corona, you know, typewriter there. But we would all, it was like show-and-tell. It was like the writer's room. We'd all come up, we'd all... Read the things that we had been writing, and you know, it'd it'd either go yay or "Mm." I mean, we were never really very mean about it. We'd we'd only give something, you know, no matter how weird it was, or at least be positive. You know, I mean, I think we had enough quality control that we weren't going to just throw anything on, but I think that we were very encouraging to each other.
13: We're writing new material every single month. Every month, brand new show. And yeah, we made a little money off of it, but it wasn't like it was our living. You know, we all had other jobs at that time. That's impressive. It was all just motivated. Self, it was what they call it intrinsically motivated, right? Which was that it was for the sake of doing it. And we put tremendous amount of work in.
0: We continued to do political satire, but we always made a point of making fun of ourselves and the North Coast hippie oasis known as Mendocino. This was especially true with An Officer and a Pendleton, starring Steve Weingarten as a non-conformist arrested by the Green Police and thrown into a work camp.
8: Ecotopia 1991 and you are there!
11: <laughs> never used to be like this, oh. No, I can still remember the good old days when me and the boys used to drive our 12-cylinder bouldermobile out onto the desert, stopping at every gas station because we had to, eating greasy french fries all night long, Top Dog, Burger King, Der ha! <laughs> life was ours to live the way we wanted to live it. still remember the sounds of those Birkenstocks coming up my driveway.
9: Those
15: Birkenstocks sticking in my door.
9: Oh, I can see you with Pendleton shirts! <laughs>
10: well, first of all, Officer and a Pendleton was a takeoff on the movie which had come out at the time called Officer and a Gentleman. Doug, you didn't seem to be at all at odds with turning a one-liner in it. That somebody else would do into a bit, and so you know your your capacity for expanding upon one-liners was, uh, I find, remarkable. Again, <laughs> underappreciated over time. Yeah, that was a great setup. I was just a guy being in prison for uh, not being hip, or for being re- resisting being hip. You might have been more visionary than you knew back at the time. And the other thing about an
3: officer in the Pendleton, which is, I mean, talk about the little things that you love, you know, that, that you enjoy doing. It was so cool. So there's, I wasn't in that bit, you know, but, but I got to play harmonica backstage. So every time he would go into his monologue, I played this bad harmonica, like you'd see in those movies where somebody's like reminiscing. And it was like, I loved doing that. It was so stupid. But it's so, you know, so everybody would put their bit into it.
1: And then there was joke-enders, which poked fun at those drug rehab facilities like coke-enders. But in the hit-and-run skit, the problem was being unable to stop being silly. Those who couldn't stop cracking jokes were sent to Dr. Ernst Bummer's joke-enders labor camp. Dr. Bummer was played with extreme grouchiness by Steve Weingarten.
15: <laughs>
8: Come and get me copper. You'll never take me alive
9: <laughs> A scene from just another Hollywood movie? No, it's not. For this man has a problem and like many other Americans his life is a ruin because he is a jokeaholic. Hello I'm I'm and welcome to Myopia, the news magazine that looks at everything from the inside out. Tonight we take a look at the horrible tragedy of joke I used to go out for a few laughs with the other guys after work. <laughs>
8: I could never understand it. They'd have a few laughs and then they'd go home to their wives and families. I'd have a few laughs, and then I'd have a few more. <laughs> and before the evening was over, I'd be just rolling around on the floor, just a laughing and a
11: hollering.
10: <laughs> I was in pretty funny shape in those days. <laughs> but I'm in serious condition now. <laughs>
9: Freddie A, 41, not his real name, is a joke And he has had all sorts of trouble. In the past year alone, he has lost over 53 jobs. But this problem seems to be striking all ages. This next woman, Prudence B, 23, not her real name, was a former prep school All American and hot tub designer when the dragon was struck. Now her life is a ruin, and Prudence B is a confirmed jokey.
16: Well, I was always a giggler. From birth, I giggled. When I was nine or ten years old, every night before I'd go to sleep, I do the same knock-knock joke over and over again. I beg my mother to say, Who's there? <laughs> That's when I went to the school of hard knock-knocks. <laughs> but it didn't help, it just got worse. They finally sent me here for a de joke after they found me on the bathroom floor with laugh tracks and grab <laughs> a
0: and there was some superb character work being done in the Laugh Fest series. One of my and the audience's favorite bits that year was Tracy's Mitzi Schleppenheimer character monologue.
13: Mitzi actually was originally going to be a sketch for all the women in the group. And I started writing a sketch where it was te- high school girls doing a show. And so I wrote it as a monologue. And that the premise was that it was a talent show. Nobody showed up. So Mitzi has to do the entire show herself. But she's incredibly shy and incredibly awkward. So she does a Shakespearean scene, Antony and Cleopatra, but it's Mr. T and Cleopatra. So it had a Mr. T doll. And I would, you know, do Shakespearean. I don't remember all the lines, but it was Shakespearean lines. But doing it is Mr. T. And she did the whole dance number but it was with paper dolls. Most of the time she really was realizing she couldn't, then there weren't people to do the thing. So she had her cards of what the next act was. So she would mostly just go, no, no, no. Okay. And then she'd find something she could do, but she mostly was just like, no, no, can't do that. It was so fun. I love Mitzi. I think I still have Mitzi's outfit and her headdress, her Cleopatra headdress and the Mr. T doll.
16: This next piece personal favorite. I don't know about you, but I love the classics, especially William Shakespeare. I'd like to do for you now one of Shakespeare's finest pieces. (laughs) Mr. T and Cleopatra.
1: fall of 1984, Hit and Run put together a two-act comedy review filled with highlights of their best bits and toured it around Northern California, from Garberville to San Francisco's Julian Theater. Democracy and Traction was a lively show and included a lot of our recent favorites like Joke Enders, Officer in a Pendleton, and Mitzi Schleppenheimer, but also other recent exercises in silliness like Godzilla vs. Baba Ram Das. And Poppin' Fresh, the problem child, where the stroppy little doughboy has it out with his mom and Pillsbury.
14: Poppy, how was your experience with the counselor, Poppy? Would you like some homemade donuts and some milk?
17: Come on, Poppy, come on. Mom, I'd appreciate it if you started calling me by my full name, Poppin' Fresh Pillsbury. (laughs) I decided not to go to the counselor's mother. I decided to hang out at Winchell's and stay But Poppy! I mean, Poppy
7: was
14: dressed. That counselor's a trained psychologist. He's there to help you with your studies. To help you get into Pepperidge Farm State, on am at home at <laughs> That's it, monster. You know you're living in a dream world.
17: You know I don't have a grade to get in a Pepperidge farm state. Besides, I don't want to major in home ec. Can't you see, Mom? I've got to be me. I don't want to follow in your footsteps. I just want to be a simple donut fryer. I want to work in Winchell.
15: No! <laughs> You listen to me, young man! Why, at least your father... Oh, yeah!
17: Go ahead and say it, Mrs. Crocker! I know, Mother. You can't hide it from me any longer. My father really is Duncan Hines, isn't he? Yes!
15: Yes! How did you find out? I read about it on the back of a biscuit box. (laughs) Mother, you should have told me! All these years of mental
17: anguish, Trying to follow in the family footsteps, wondering about my dad. You know, Mom, I finally turned to drugs. That's right, I've been shooting up yeast and snorting baking powder. Anything to get a rise out of life.
14: Poppy, tell me it's not true. Poppy, you're a pills bearer. You were born to bake. Come on, Poppy. Let's make some tools, cookies. To we can use all the crazy cookies. For God's sake, son, don't waste your
17: life on my little pudding! Love it, mother! You know I'm too old for that! I'm off to Winchell's Mom! See
7: ya!
0: At the end of Democracy and Traction, we all took more time off from hit-and-run theater. In 1985, Tracy and I spent most of the year in the U.K. learning to be the double act, Burns and Nunn. We did tryouts at various venues, started getting paid work, and then it all picked up steam. Soon, we were working at various clubs and cabarets around London and southern England, going to drama school and a variety of workshops, and becoming a regular part of London's alternative cabaret scene.
1: At this point, Hit and Run was mostly on hiatus, all working on various other projects. But at the end of 1985, Tracy and Doug returned to Mendocino and began work with Harry, Ellen, Whiney, and Richard Feinbop on Fiat Yucks, a play on the classic Latin phrase Fiat Lux for Let There Be Light. We wanted a show called Fiat Yucks,
0: or Let There Be Laughs, We added Lawrence Bullock, who had played Xavier Bollocks in Rockalypse, as well as the Gloriana Opera Company's Sandy Glickfeld. Both Lawrence and Sandy were very good singers and added a powerful music boost to our cast. In addition, we added Ellen's daughter, Shaunice Michaels, as an extra in various skits. Tracy and I had written a lot for this show while in England. In addition, Ellen, Harry, and Whiney added material, and Fiat Yucks was ready to fly come early 1986. We opened with an absolutely ridiculous song parody based on the early 1950s hit song Mr. Sandman by the Cordettes. Our version was called Mr. Spam Man. And those dancing legs with silver tights in the giant spam can belonged to Harry Rothman.
6: It was fun also in that show um i got to be a dancing spam camp that was that that's show. that's right. right we opened yeah.
0: the show with that yeah. where you got to be uh it was called mr spam man which was done yeah. to the tune of mr sandman
6: yeah.
0: that and Ed, we had from- sandy
6: in the show sandy glickfeld was in that show so we had her fabulous voice and so was lawrence for that matter. that's
0: right that's right yeah. and um so we had that mr spam man mr spam man spice pork Tap and dancing. fat dancing Army K rations in a cane and top hat. You're (laughs) a cold cut who's just like Gene Kelly. Open your top, and you're full of jelly. jelly. Yeah, and that that ended up, and Harry was, we had a giant spam can, which to this day, I still have.
1: Fiat Yucks also featured a mini-musical called Bethlehem High School, which blended aspects of the New Testament with the musical Grease. Lawrence brought in Dr. Jason Kirkman to do keyboards for this biblically-inspired mini-musical.
0: The premise was that Jesus was part of, like, a teen gang, and uh, so all they they instead of having motorcycles, they had mule cycles. Of course, because right. it was yes. antiquity uh, at the right. time. So it was, <laughs> it, was, it was the year zero. So my anyway.
6: favorite props, almost of all time, with the mule cycles. They, and we had the greatest props. Uh, Whiny made these things that he called mule cycles. Right? They were huge. They were easily six feet long, about ten, maybe twelve inches wide. <laughs> And had handles on them, so everybody who came in on the mule cycles and we, and we also the, we named some of them. There was the Honda and the uh, y- 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 Yamahiha) <laughs> Yeah.
0: yeah. And that was really great.
6: So unruly they were so huge. My favorite part of it, though, really, was was watching Shauna, Salon's daughter in a beard, like one of the prophets or whatever. <laughs>
7: <laughs> Will
12: you stop playing son of man and get your divine mind up here? Alright,
8: <laughs> already, all right. <laughs> see, guys, Dad just doesn't understand. God, it ain't easy being a messiah in love.
10: Yeah, yeah, with the, the year zero, because... They, we know they had MULO cycles back then, but we know they didn't have motorcycles because the Industrial Revolution hadn't happened yet in oil drilling, et cetera, et cetera. So everything that you asked for, Doug, was absolutely historically correct. Basically, if you're going to build a prop, you want it to last for the run of the show. You know, that's one thing. Now, if the players are going to abuse the prop, then you have to build it a little more strong to make it so that the abusive players won't screw up your beautiful prop. So you have to take all these things into consideration. (laughs) And And on a good day, the appearance of the prop will bring a large guffaw from the audience. This is where I got my kicks, was making something that would get an audience response, a visual. If you will, that's where I got to play it.
1: Winey also wrote a pseudo-spiritual piece based on the work of famed psychic medium Edgar Casey. His version was called Edgar Casey at the Bat.
11: Ladies and gentlemen, Hit and Run Theater, in conjunction with Poor Straight Down a Lot, presents <laughs> Casey at the Bat. First, the world did the same. A pallor in the features of the patrons of the game. A straggling few got up to go, leaving there the rest with that hope which springs eternal within the human breast. For they thought, if only Casey could get a whack in that, they put up even money with Casey at the bat.
6: Edgar Casey at the bat, right, and it was this whole metaphysical rant written along the lines of Casey in the, at the Bat. We finished it. We used the trapdoor. We had the podium over the trapdoor, right? And came up out of the trapdoor right at the end with a cream pie,
10: right? It was a, a recitation of uh, the poem Casey at the Bat, C-A-S-E-Y at the Bat. And I was taking psychic classes at the time. And I thought, wouldn't it be great to conflate Casey at the Bat with Edgar Casey? And so I kind of rewrote it. Uh, but Edward, Edgar Casey kept on getting it wrong, making predictions about what would happen, and then they wouldn't happen right. And so finally, through a, a cutaway place in the, in, in the stage floor, uh, somebody reaches up and puts a pie in Edgar Casey's face as well he deserved for his many uh, incorrect uh, predictions about what was supposed to go on. And that was the end of it.
11: For Casey, Edgar Casey. Now had his chance to predict. <laughs> he was called the sleeping prophet by those who had a look, and as he slept he could absorb the contents of a book. The vision of his third eye was the wonder of his day. The healing power of his hands pissed off the AMA. <laughs> a tarot shuffling pitcher had a fire in his eye, and then he taunted Casey. Prophesied. I will give you one, said Casey, his psychic self aligned. A quake will take to the Golden State in April 69. But April came and April went, the coastline not undone. Response to this was obvious. The National Enquirer wrote,
9: straight Sue <laughs> them,
11: sue the Enquirer shouted someone from the stand, and slightly he'd have done it had not Casey raised his hand. Listen, pagan picture. this'll cut you down in size. The poles will change their places, the temperatures will rise. Alas, this time old Casey's sight was a room without a view. And history, it can't be erased. The inquirer wrote, STRIKE DOWN! fortune cookies flew like mad, the patrons screaming fraud. But when Casey tossed his yarrow sticks, the audience was awed. <laughs> they knew that they could not dismiss their reason to believe, for Edward's automatic writing was still up his psychic sleeve. <laughs> and, and now the picture trembles, quite like some hummingbirds, and now the air is shattered by the force of
8: Casey's words.
11: The Atlantis kingdom, it will rise. The Bahamas will be the place that year of fate, 1968. And now, <sighs> I rest my case. Oh, somewhere in this land, a crystal ball rolls in the groove. Psychic readings underway at past lights on the moon. Somewhere, transmediums giggle, and somewhere, yogis shout. But there is no joy in Atlantis. Edgar takes me out.
0: There was a lot of variety in Fiat Yucks, including our first and only pirate sitcom, My Three Legs.
6: We joked about calling it My Three Legs, but I think it was officially called Pirate Dad, where I played Solly the Parrot. Rosanna made me this parrot thing. (laughs) (laughs) I've explained that bit to so many people because it's for me i mean the bit could have ended as soon as she she turned the music off i mean the sound of the creaking off yeah i come out with my cigar and my beer
0: yeah we had to do a pirate sitcom and in the pirate sitcom harry was the the token parrot we we had to be on stage and pretend like we were rocking back and forth with the sea kind of pushing the, the boat, <laughs> and uh, it was very hard. We always rocked. I always rocked in a different direction. Than well, I had to else.
6: follow you. You know, <laughs> yeah. I could see you. You're right there. I was yeah. in there. I had my. There was a hole in a straight piece of wood. It was like this wide, <laughs> and a hole here for my face for the beak of the parrot, and two little holes on either side down here like this where there were holes and where it was painted as the perch. So it was my little <laughs> fingers and my face. <laughs> and then
15: when
6: the, when the sound of the creaking goes off and you keep going for a few seconds, it was so ridiculous. <laughs> my favorite skits in that show, and there were a lot of them, was the uh, Sherwood Forest Cabaret. I, my favorite part of it, I loved what you all guys did up there, but my favorite part was having the orchestra slowly come up out of the pit. You know, <laughs> what is it? Uh, Green Sleeve. Hmm. I'll do it here. <laughs> And yeah. then by the time we were fully up nope, the show started. And we ended the same way by going down. <laughs> yeah.
1: The Sherwood Forest Cabaret was set in the 12th century. The club was hosted by MC Robin Hood and featured comedy by Maid Marian and a blues song sent in from the 8th century by Beowulf himself.
16: Before I go, I'd like to inter- our guest spot of the evening. He's come all the way from the eighth century. (gasps) He is the beat poet of the dark ages, the bluesiest Saxon in merry old England. Let's put those paws together for Mr. Saga himself. Beowulf, come on! (laughs) (laughs)
9: <laughs> I'm
0: Yucks also included a beautiful piece of Hit and Run Heart, a skit called Are You Sleeping, featuring Tracy Burns and Ellen Callis.
13: That was such a sweet sketch. And that was two girls, two young girls who are best friends. And then you see them go through life until they're old. And it always starts with them. Are you you sleeping? Um, And so you through them being at a slumber party and liking a you know, whatever they're doing is (laughs) 10-year-old And then they marry, divorce until they're in old age, and it's sort of they're sitting, you know, in an old folks' home, and it's, "Are you sleeping? I'm just resting my eyes." And they've been through their whole lives together.
16: Uh, no wonder they call it labor. Hey, I'm scared. Well, of course you're scared. That's natural. <coughs> you're giving birth. Out of it, but you said your biological clock was ticking, and you were tired of waiting for Mr. Wright to come along, so
12: you could
16: have
14: a family. Yeah, yeah, I beat the clock. <laughs> oh, I know I this baby. I just feel
13: so alone
16: right now. Well, in a few hours, you won't be alone again for a long time.
13: <laughs> and it was really sweet, and and we saw you know, divorce, marriage, birth, death, you know, all of it was in this one slice of, you know, of this time capsule of these two characters' lives. I love that sketch. That was um, that was really sweet and and fun and it and there were definitely funny moments, but it wasn't a laugh riot. And I like that. I'm good with that. I also think it, you need it in a show. You've got shape of show. You need to have peaks and valley. You got to have variety and give the audience a little rest too and find the places. So that was really nice. But you know, I've
14: never taken your friendship for granted, no.
16: and spilled red wine on it. Margie, dear, if
14: you remember correctly, it was you who spilled red wine on that dress. But what about the time you let
16: your little brother break my favorite baby doll? You shouldn't have left it at our house. And the gold charm bracelet? You gave that to me. (laughs) What about the time you slept with Sam? That was before you were together.
1: For the rest of 1986, Doug and Tracy did shows around Mendocino, California, and the Pacific Northwest as Burns and Nunn, and continuing the LaughFest series locally, opening for a variety of comedians, some from San Francisco and some friends from Britain. Burns and Nunn incorporated hit-and-run players, but the group was dispersing somewhat in these years. Ellen Callis joined the SF Mime Troop, initially as a production assistant and later as a writer, producer, and full troop member. Tracy and Doug were looking for work as a double act. This transition was a definite disappointment for Harry.
0: We we did resurrect things for Fiat Yucks and we, we managed to have that going on. And then Ellen had by then was was heading for the Mime Troop. You yourself were actually heading for the Mime Troop at that point. Well,
6: not for another year, but yeah, after that yeah yeah well i and remember I, I auditioned for gloriana 1986 to play riff and west side story and after auditions um i had to tell linda pack director that i wasn't going to be able to do it because hit and run was going to go on the road we're going to make something happen with this Fiat yuck show. oh my god <laughs> yeah. biggest disappointment I, I i've been i told you i've been watching uh, the west side story thing And I go, riff, I could have been riff, ah, I never got to be riff, but it didn't matter. But that was my, my literal experience at the time that, uh, you know, I was going to go for that. And then I was like, oh no, we're going to do this. And then Alan moved to San Francisco. (laughs) And it was like, ah, you guys were already starting to do your thing too.
0: Burns and Nunn was indeed the focus for Tracy Burns and myself for the period 1985 to 92. We happily participated in hit and run shows, produced reunions and other get-togethers, but we mostly did our own shows and invited hit-and-run comrades to participate. Winey and Harry played when they were around. Winey most notably did all our homemade reviews and built prop after prop and designed set after set for our shows. But our main focus was Burns and None, and we spent a lot of time working in the U.K. and Europe over the next five years. <laughs>
6: You're watching Jameson tonight, a wonderful American duo now. Cabaret stars with a highly original repertoire of comedy, mime, song, and dance. Give them a
0: big hand, ladies and gentlemen, Burns and Nunn! Thank you very much! As a double act, we had a style that was heavily influenced by our experiences with hit-and-run theatre. Very skit-oriented. But we also had a cabaret style as a duo. Among the skits we played were a wonderfully ridiculous old vaudeville act called Shecky and Sadie. We rewrote famous movie scenes for canines in Doghouse 90. We ended domestic disputes on stage as a wrestling act. And we brought Northern Europe's most famous pseudo show to America in Friesland Tonight.
13: Another sketch that I love, uh, Friesland Tonight.
0: Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm.
13: Kirk Vanderfluff and...
0: <laughs> yeah.
13: And I got to play this Frieslandian man and I had this wig and mustache and I was constantly hitting on the women in the audience. That yeah.
0: was very fun. We were a we were in a, a Frieslandish double act, and I was yeah. Dirk van der Fluff, and you were my partner. <laughs> yeah. And um yeah, which of course we loved doing because it was our uh, attempt to be Dutch. Yeah. And we had Whiny on as a guest star at one point. Right. And uh whiny had come on you were always bragging about the size of your um uh, oh, organ
13: right. my manhood
0: and whiny came on tried to trick us and so he had a balloon in his pants and somehow you man i think you might have had a tack or something you managed I, to pop the balloon on I stage the
13: balloon yeah i remember that now yeah the,
0: the that, audience went nuts the audience it, absolutely went nuts and uh, which, was was, which was terrific to see, actually. It was a lot of fun. Burns and Nunn is a subject for another show for sure. However, I must admit our double act sojourn, Ellen's move to San Francisco, and Harry's eventual following in that direction did put a crimp in Hit and Run's continuity and style as a group. For the next years, Hit and Run came together in different combinations, mainly to do improv reunions like Improvaganza 2, Improvapalooza, and Improvazilla. I would put out the word, and we would manage to bring back Ellen, Harry, Pamela, Albright, Whiney, Tracy, and me for reunions. These shows continued into the 1990s and into this century. We did do some skit reunion shows, but more and more the group's emphasis became improvisation.
1: One of our great advantages over the years has been having access to great artists like Steve Weingarten, Matt Rowland, Bill Stoneham, and wonderful and cooperative lighting folks like Eileen Wolfe and Sally Worson. Our theater has been marked by being homemade, home-cooked, or just plain simple, mostly for monetary reasons. As many of these interviews repeatedly say, we've never had money for anything most especially for props, although if the writers' conceptions had been followed through on, Hidden run could have spent millions.
0: During the O Velveeta, National Velveeta, Arnold Vicious, and Rockalypse eras, our ideas and concepts were absolutely grandiose. But Whiney, Matt Rowland, and Bill Stoneham managed to build fantastic sets and props for next to no money. Initially, the work was done mostly by Whiney and Matt Rowland, who called themselves the FX Brothers.
10: By the time that we had uh, reached National Velveeta, uh, Matt Rowland and I were sort of partnering in doing the visuals in that in that particular show. And apparently over time, I'm not sure where it came from, but we were given, I didn't put it on myself, uh, we were given the name the FX Brothers. I think there was a TV network that just came out at that time. I think they were doing a lot of sci-fi and stuff like that. And they were visually oriented. Maddie and I were called the FX ex-brothers because we were doing the visuals and that was sort of the beginning of a run of various things that i did with maddie uh most of which were not theatrically associated or many of which anyway it was sort of the beginning of a friendship and which you know has been maintained below these many years
1: after Rockalypse Gwiney took on the role almost single-handedly, he was set designer, prop maker, and he had a lot of parts to prepare for in various shows.
10: But I learned how to build sets and props. I had understood color to a point. I was able to uh, literally at sometimes go to the dump, uh, pick out pieces from the dump, and then turn them into sets, which I did with some regularity um, until it became illegal and you know essentially assemble a backdrop or an environment for hit and run to do uh, it's performing as you know and i was um i was sort of a dream come true for a bunch of thespian people in a lot of ways yeah because i was certain sort of, i was sort of a, a one-man support group in that fashion i wrote this down so i was a builder for many years and that's what i did like in order to make money in order to lose money, I worked with Hit and Run. And I, was, I, I, I was successful in both ventures. Basically, a set would take me someplace between 100 and 120 hours. That was the, the, those are the numbers. And that was what it took. And usually they took two weeks. And so in those two weeks, whatever it was I was building before, I couldn't do that. But I switched into creating the environment. And and Doug, often you would provide me with a list of props to build. And I would then proceed (laughs) to build the props. And I could do that at home. And then I would be working often in the day it was Crown Hall and uh, building built in sets there. And so I was going back and forth uh, between my my house where I was building things. And then I was installing them in Crown Hall and back and forth and back and forth. And in the end, the rehearsal time got in because it was rehearsal time. I couldn't be building the set during rehearsal time. The rehearsal time was actually an impediment to do, me doing my sets. So oftentimes the rehearsal would happen. It would last till 10 or 11. Everybody would leave, and then I go back to building the set.
0: Effectively, without whiny, we wouldn't have a set to play on, but we also wouldn't have a key performer in most of our skits.
10: Being resourceful is a good thing, you know. Yeah. Uh, in in that fact, we weren't going to be industrial light and magic, but we could be a guy with a pickup truck who can glue things together, and so, yeah. uh, and, and that was and that was really functional. Also, we got we got a really a sweet response from the audience for that kind of stuff it's like the you know the the little theater group that tried or
0: something like yeah. that i was just thinking effectively you were if if we were a james bond movie you played the part of q the guy who uh, puts <laughs> together all the the weapons that bond uses and then shows him how to use them you were yeah. that guy who came up with all these and very cheaply done you did not have the budget that MI6 had in Britain or something like that. You, you actually put right. these things together for next to no money, which is kind of impressive when you think about it. So
10: You, by the way, at the end, which the end, was played by John Cleese, so I take this as you know,
1: high praise. Our light persons were usually set up by Harry Rothman in our skid writing days. Harry would design lights for various of our silly skits, and they were run by many, including Katie Simonton, Don Strauss, and many others over time. By the late 1980s, Eileen Wolf and eventually Sally Worson took over, concentrating mostly on doing lights for our improv shows. Sally will talk more about lighting improv shows in part two of the history of Hit and Run Theater.
0: Hit and Run Theater was always first and foremost a comedy troupe, modeled on some of our favorite groups, Saturday Night Live, Monty Python's Flying Circus, your show of shows, Duck's Breath Mystery Theater, or in Living Color. For many in the group, the emphasis was to be silly all the time. For others, it was on the sweetness in everyday life. For others amongst us, we wanted to do political comedy all of the San Francisco Mime Troupe. We wanted to mix Laurel and Hardy with Lucille Ball and Bertolt Brecht. From the beginning, we had political skits. I remember Antonia Lamb singing I'm Gonna Vote for Jesus on stage at the Casper Inn in our April 1980. Cac cac ergo sum show. I don't have a recording, but some of her lines were brilliant. I'm gonna vote for Jesus. He's the guy for me. I'm gonna vote for Jesus, the man from Galilee. Mark your ballot with the cross. Elect the prince of peace. Cast your vote for Jesus and live eternally. Thank you, Antonia.
1: Hidden Run wrote lots about the environment over those years. Before he died in 1981, Jim Noyes penned Harrisburg, his ode to the nuclear plant that almost melted down and took half of Pennsylvania with it. And in that same year, Pamela, Ellen, Antonia, and Kathy cobbled together Acid Showers, a terrific song about acid rain and its effects.
0: for Tech Shitter, the Texon from Exxon, who is inevitably on the wrong side of various issues having to do with Mother Earth, most of them dealing with fossil fuels.
1: was a powerful response to the campaign for drilling for oil off the North Coast during the Reagan era. It was a song addressed to our governor at the time, Republican George Duke Majin, belted out by Harry Rothman. Ladies and gentlemen, an important message from
16: our governor to the citizens of California.
8: I love the world, and together we'll walk with my greedy friends to a greasy paradise that never ends.
0: kinds of commercial parodies ridiculing various Reagan and Bush-era policies. Here's one from 1982's O Velveeta, mocking the Reagan administration's fixation on neutron bombs, which used powerful radiation to destroy.
1: Took on an issue back in 1986's Fiat Yucks, the issue of immigrants fighting for amnesty, an issue which is still in the news almost 36 years later. Listen to part of Amnesty or Consequences. It's almost prescient. Hidden Run Theater actually seems like we know what we're talking about.
8: Victoria Wellington Makiba is a black South African artist and political activist on the run from apartheid captured, she was living in a Quaker art collective seeking political asylum in the U.S.A.
11: Rosita Guevara
8: is a Nicaraguan peasant forced to flee her native land by fierce contra
11: attacks. She escaped to the U.S.A. and had been sheltered at the Clyde Memorial Church before being reported to immigration.
8: Can Rosita or Victoria attain asylum status? Will they compete for the magic green card? We'll find out tonight.
0: In 1994, Tracy and I split up as a couple. This meant we were finished domestically, but it also meant we were likely finished as a double act. I had booked Crown Hall for a few months later in the hope that Tracy and I would still do a show. Quite understandably, she declined, but Harry, Winey, and Albright joined me to do a show called The Boys of Hit and Run. I don't know that it was a classic, but it did contain one skit that was undeniably memorable, Chickens, penned by Richard Albright. we have to mention chickens now chickens uh was a, a very simple bit that richard albright came up it, it was, was in the
6: boys of hit and run
0: among right? other things and it yeah, was no, we
6: used it later yeah <laughs> and i almost didn't have wanted in the show if you remember this I thought it was terrible. I thought it was the worst bit ever. I couldn't believe that we weren't thinking of doing it. And we had this discussion before we opened the show. It might might have been a couple of days before. And we decided we'll try it the first night. If it doesn't work, we'll take it out. Remember all this? And then it was like the best bit in the entire show. People ate it up. It was so much fun to do. And, And I was so wrong. (laughs)
0: Yeah. Well, just to give you the premise, um, it was three people, Harry, Steve Weingarten and Richard Albright, who stood up on stage and acted like chickens for about five minutes.
6: It just went on. It went on for a pretty long time.
0: And it kicked ass. And it was one of those classic things. But he wrote that in the sense that he came up with the concept and you guys killed every single time you did it.
6: It really was amazing. <laughs> Did he finish it with um, where's the road or something? Or It was some reference to the chicken crossing the road joke
0: right at the end, right? Is that right? Am I remembering that right? And that was the end of the bit, and then the lights went out.
1: Future hit-and-runner Christine Samus also remembers chickens quite well.
4: Then you've also heard people, of course, talk about the chicken thing. Yes. I mean, you know, local people. Still talk about the chicken thing. And I know this for you, Doug, is a sense, you know, you have a sense of annoyance about it because you spent hours and hours and hours writing all kinds of amazing, smart, funny um, uh, things about politics and climate. And, you know, you really worked on craft and a whole bunch of things. But what a lot of people in town, when they think of Hit and Run in the old days, they'll think, oh, but that chicken sketch.
7: <laughs> uh.
0: Part one of the story of Hit and Run Theatre included reflections from Ellen Callis, Richard Feenbach, Kathy O'Grady, Pamela Stoneham, Harry Rothman, Steve Weingarten, Tracy Burns, Christine Samus, Ken Kraus, and myself, Doug Nunn. Part two in our story of Hit and Run Theatre will continue in next month's SNAP Session.
1: Support for Snap Sessions is brought to you by listeners who contribute generously at our link, patreon.com forward slash or through the link in the Snap Sessions website, thesnapsessions.com, and also the link in our show notes. Thanks to our Snappus Maximus contributors, Ron Hawksprung and Rick and Henny Newman, and to our supportive snappers, Peter and Sheila Jowers, Kathy White, Dominique Jowers and John Bird, Gabriel Geiger and Christine Samus. Other contributors include Steve Weingarten and Jerry Shook.